So you playing along at home, reading out of your worship aids, you might have noticed that we had a different set of readings that were read today. Uh, that's because this is the second year of a three-year cycle in the liturgical year of the church, years A, B, and C. This is, ding, ding, year B, right in the middle. And in year B, we have special options for readings that we don't get in years A and C, and I like them, so it's the ones we went with. <laughs> but we were all able to hear, yes? We were all able. We're going to dive into them a little bit more. At least, we're going to get into the second reading from the first letter of St. John. But before I do that, before I do that, I want to talk to you about one of my favorite movies. Uh, I was trying to think the other day. It's certainly a top ten movie. I don't know that it's a top five movie. I treat these lists very seriously. So we'll give it a top seven. I think top seven is fair, and the movie wouldn't be offended, and neither would I. The, the movie that I want to talk to you about is called Moneyball. Moneyball. Uh, it's a movie about baseball, and you know, I came here in the late fall, and the Cubs didn't have a great year, so for those of you who might not know this about me yet, I am a huge Cubs fan. I'm a huge Cubs fan. And most serious and significant things in my life somehow turn towards and relate back to baseball for me. Moneyball is a movie about baseball, and it's a true story. It's a movie about uh, the 2001 Oakland Athletics, the Oakland A's. Now, baseball is a sport that's been around for a very, very, very long time. I don't know how much you know about baseball, but baseball was actually being played by Civil War soldiers in their camps before battle. Uh, it's, it's a sport that goes way back uh, and has carried with it just heaps, gobs of tradition, right? Uh, this is the right way to play the game. This is the wrong way to play the game. You coach a game by the book or, you know, you're some sort of unorthodox, you know, new age, whatever. This game uh, has been built up over time, and because of that, there are legends who have shown people, you know, the glory of being able to hit the ball, uh, that home run is king, you know, different things that have come around over the course of over a century of this one sport. Now, let me tell you a little something about baseball for those of you who have never watched baseball before. The object of baseball is to win. That might come as a surprise. And the, the second most important thing is, the team with the best players is usually the winner. You with me so far? Good. Now, how is it that as a, a Major League Baseball team, you can acquire for yourself the best players? How do you get the best players on your team? Well, you pull out a check, and you just keep writing zeros until your hand cramps. Uh, and if you can write someone a big enough check, they will play baseball for you. They'll do it. But see, this is the problem. Because what that's meant over the past decades, since you know the second decade of the 20th century, uh, when baseball came to a couple different agreements, what that means is the team with the most money usually gets the best players. And the team with the best players usually wins. So that means usually the big market teams, the Yankees, the Dodgers, are usually going to win. 
usually they can sign the best players to their team. Well, that's a problem because that means that there's a pretty big disparity uh, between small market teams and big market teams. That's what this movie was about. Around the year 2001, the general manager, uh, president of baseball operations for the Oakland Athletics, Billy Bean, had a supposition. He said, we're a little team. We don't have enough money to hire the best players. So what if we tried something new? What if there was something going on in this game that no one had discovered yet? What if there was a way to win this game that people didn't know about yet? What if batting average was not the most important thing? What if you could chart how many times a person got on base? Because a base is a run eventually, and a run is a win. What if home run isn't king? What if there was some other metric that you could measure baseball by? He hired in a bunch of different people from Ivy League schools using saber metrics. He put together a team of misfits, a whole bunch of people that baseball had rejected because they didn't pass the eye test. Oh, sure, you know, he was good at baseball 10 years ago, but he's old and washed up. He can't do anything for you anymore. Or on first base, he had a player who had had a uh, surgically repaired shoulder. He couldn't throw the ball. But they said, well, we don't know, need him to throw the ball at first base. We just need him to be able to catch. And he's a good hitter, so we're going to hire him on the team. He put this together, and it was supposed to be the sort of like magic of baseball. I promise Jesus is going to come into this homily. Work with me here, people. Now, in the movie... Uh, Billy Bean has a daughter in real life and in the movie. And in the movie, it doesn't go well at the beginning of the season. You know, this team of misfits doesn't start to pan out the way that they think they're going to. And so all of the different sports radio personalities are criticizing him. Yet, no, this was a great theory that Billy Bean wanted to put together. It seemed like this would work. It looks good on paper. But baseball's not a game of metrics. There's a right way to play the game, and there's a wrong way to play the game. And he's playing the game the wrong way. And if you don't play the right way, you're not going to win. No one should be surprised. This new thing doesn't work. You know, you can almost, you can, I don't know what Stephen A. was saying about the 2001 Oakland Athletics, but you can imagine the hot takes. And Billy Bean's daughter, at a certain point in the movie, is making hot fudge sundaes with her dad. She's scooping out ice cream and they're putting chocolate sauce on. And then she looks at her dad and says, she's like, you know, 11 years old, says, Dad, there's, there's no way you're going to lose your job, Right? And he says, no, no, don't worry about that. Who told you that? Where do you hear that? And she said, well, you know, I, I go on the internet sometimes. And he said, well, don't do that. Don't go on the internet or watch TV or read the newspaper or talk to people. Because everyone was against him. And no matter where you turned, every source was taking away the piece of security. Billy Bean knew this was going to work. And do you know what happened? Billy Bean didn't lose his job. It worked. The Oakland A's won the American League pennant that year with a staff of nobody. The very next year in the 2003 season, the Boston Red Sox used the same exact system to break their curse to win the World Series. 
A decade later in 2016, the Cubs used that same uh, sequence, those same metrics, that same neuroscouting to be able to find the right players to break their curse. Billy Bean changed the game of baseball and all of the things that baseball had brought up, you know, even, even the conflicts, the scandals, everything was pushed aside because he had reinvented the game. He brought something new and it changed things. Now Jesus. Jesus came, today we celebrate the, the, the feast of the baptism of the Lord. Do you know that? Happy birthday, Jesus. It's the baptism. Uh, and the baptism is a very particular feast where a very particular thing happens. Jesus enters into the waters with something new. He brings something new. Previous to Jesus' baptism, prior to Jesus' baptism, there was the baptism of repentance. This is what John the Baptist preached. People came out and they said, well, I'm sorry for my sins. I'll try to do better. Thank you. And they washed in the water and then they left the Jordan. Jesus came into the water of the Jordan and he entered in in a new way and he brought something new. Jesus sanctified the water. He changed it. He made it powerful. He filled it with something. When Jesus entered into the water of baptism, he was the culmination of everything that had happened in the past and a fulfillment prophecy of everything that was about to happen. All time came together in this one moment. Jesus entered into the Jordan the same way that the prophet Elisha had slapped the water of the Jordan with his mantle earlier and it had parted for him so he could walk through. Jesus entered into the waters of the Jordan in the same way that Joshua had led Israel and the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, through the waters of the Jordan as it stopped on either side so that holiness could pass through. Jesus entered into those waters the same way that Moses had led Israel through the Red Sea, a body of water which they entered on one side as slaves, and they departed on the other side as free people, a body of water that meant salvation for Israel, but that meant death and destruction for their slave masters and their pursuers and the Egyptians. Jesus entered into that water, that same water that had been present and threatening the world since the time of Noah and the flood. A water that brought destruction for corruption, for the creation that was no longer amenable to God in his sight, but that brought salvation to everything pure and preserved. A lot of times when I'm doing baptisms, I share this with parents, and it's, you know, maybe not what they're, they're hoping to hear at the time of their baptism. But because of all of these different biblical, scriptural symbols of baptism throughout our Bible, baptism is a symbol of death. It's a symbol of death. St. Paul says, do you not know that when you are baptized in Christ, you are baptized into his death? And indeed we are. Christ enters into the water that took life, that took corruption, that was filled with chaos, and he does battle with the things underneath. 
He wrestles the strong man and binds him, and then he emerges through death victorious. Baptized into his death, we're also baptized into his life. And that means, that means that Jesus brought something new to baptism. And when he emerged from the waters, everyone said, well, you know, that looks really nice. And I'm sure that Jesus and all his message and all this good stuff he's doing sounds great. But there's one way to play the game. And if you don't do it the right way, you will not win. You can't do it. Relationship with God is built upon sacrifice, is built upon burnt offering, is built upon commandments, is built upon following the law and festival. And this path that Jesus shows you looks like it's going to work, but it won't. And if anyone has told you or suggested that Jesus has not won this victory, that he is not priority, and that his path does not work, well, don't listen to them. Don't go on the internet or watch TV or read the newspapers or talk to people. I'm not suggesting, of course, that you you shut your eyes or your ears to what's true. I'm suggesting that you pay attention to what's true. And don't let the lies infiltrate your mind in a way that takes away the thing that is most valuable. Christ has come into something old and filled with baggage, the world, and he has brought something new. He's brought something new. And anything that chooses to to try to, to... to cast Christ out or to say, ah, that's not going to work. Put him on the back burner. Let me show you what's really important. Anything that threatens to take your attention away from Christ or to make you disbelieve in the preeminence of his reign, well, it's garbage. <laughs> Get rid of it and don't give it the time of day. There are things, hmm? There are things in the world right now I bet you there are things that have happened to you this week. I bet you there are things that you saw on the internet or watched on TV or, you know, clicked on a little thing in social media and you wrote your comment. I bet you that that thing exists and I bet you it took your peace right away. And for a moment, just for a moment, Christ's preeminence and the newness that he brought into the world was forgotten. Nothing is more important than Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that as a priest wearing tired old get-up. I'm saying that as someone who has experienced the newness. And you've experienced the newness. Nothing is more important than him. Nothing in the world. We hear in this first letter of St. John, and the victory that conquers the world is our faith. Who indeed, who indeed is the victor over the world? but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you are a victor over the world, and you have nothing to fear. Well, Father, that sounds nice on paper. Yeah, that's a nice fairy tale, but eventually I have to focus on the real world. This is the real world, and you are a victor over the real world if you have Christ. Okay, Father, but what about if I'm in a a pandemic, pandemic phooey? You have Jesus Christ, and he has made you a victor.
victor over the world. Well, Father, what if society is collapsing underneath me? What is society? You are a conqueror over society if you have Christ. Father, what if my life is in jeopardy? Friends, the life that you have is only your life because you have Christ. And the only thing that can separate you from, from Christ, from life, nothing in this world, not death, persecution, the sword, nakedness, none of it. The only thing that can separate you from Christ in life is if you let go of him and put him over there so you can hold on to something else. You have life in Christ. You are a victor over the world, and that is a promise forever. Now, I got one more thing to say, and then I'll turn my mic off and I'll go sit down. This is another true story. This is another true story, and it has to do with me. When I was five years old, when I was five years old, I went to a preschool. It was called Pooh Corner, and it was at the intersection of 116th Street and I-69 uh, in Fishers on the north side of Indianapolis, back when Fishers was still mostly farmland. We were next to a village pantry, and then while I was there, a McDonald's with a play place opened up across the street, and we went on a field trip there and went into the play place, and it was great. We all had chicken nuggets. Well, in this preschool in Pooh Corner, one of the things that we did was every year, you got to bring in snack one time. You got to bring in the snack. And it was my turn to bring in snack. So my mom and I decided we were going to make gingerbread men cookies. So, you know, I stayed up with my mom and we, you know, rolled out the dough. We cut out with the little cookie cutters all the cookies. We baked them. We set them out to dry. We put them in the little Rubbermaid so that they could be ready to go the next morning. And when I went to bed that night, I was feeling pretty good about myself because, you know, this was not like your celery stick and peanut butter snack time, huh? This was, this was gingerbread men cookie snack time. I was about to be the talk of Pooh Corner Preschool, and I was very excited about it. Well, the next morning, I woke up on cloud nine, and we went out to my mom's minivan. She was going to drop me off at preschool, and I, I was going with my little brother. Now, my brother is two years younger than me, so I was five, and he was three, and my brother was carrying the gingerbread men cookies. And as he was walking to the car, he was excited just like I was, and he, he tripped and fell. And he threw the cookies up into the air, and they landed on the blacktop pavement of our driveway, and they cracked into a million pieces. And in a way that my family still makes fun of me for today, over Christmas break, they brought up this story and made fun of me for it. As a five-year-old Cody Owens fell to his knees and said, I'm ruined. And I felt ruined because I was five. Now, you know, we can see the gingerbread men cookies are trivial. Five-year-olds become 15-year-olds. And when I was 15, I saved up money mowing lawns and doing little odd jobs, taking care of chores so that I could buy the first iPod with a touchscreen wheel. It wasn't like a touchscreen, but you know, you could control the volume, you know. I saved up like $250. I bought this thing at H.H. Gregg, which doesn't even exist anymore. And I decided I was going to 
ride my bike with it. I was going to like go on a little exercise. We were going to listen to some music. It was going to be great. And as I was, you know, putting on my helmet, want mom to be safe and all that, I put it in my pocket so that I could listen to it. Only I didn't put it in my pocket. I missed my pocket and it fell onto the concrete of my garage and it shattered. And I didn't say I'm ruined, but I felt it and my stomach turned and instead of going on a bike ride, I went inside and tried not to throw up because where was I going to get another $250? Five-year-olds become 15-year-olds, 15-year-olds become 25-year-olds, become 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 70-year-olds. And everyone has something that they think is the thing. They think this is what life is about. They think if this doesn't go right, then I'm ruined. But folks, if we had the perspective of eternity, if we saw the consequences of Christ's baptism and what he brought new into the world, if you could talk, if you could talk to the souls that have gone before and are already enjoying eternity, hmm? your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, if you could talk to them already with God and you told them, well, this is the thing in the world. This is what's going on and it's terrible. They would laugh at you the same way that you would laugh at a five-year-old me who thought that gingerbread cookies were the end-all, be-all of life. If we have the perspective of eternity and we know what's really important, what life is really about, Y'all, we are victors over the world. We've conquered it. And nothing can take that away. And if someone tries to take that away from you, anything, anyone, anything that you see or hear, well, then stop listening to them. Don't go on the internet. Don't watch TV or read the newspapers or talk to people. Not because we're trying to insulate you in some little Catholic bubble, but because Christ's peace is more important than that. And can I tell you something else? You deserve that peace. You deserve it. You deserve the peace of Christ. It's yours. It was made for you. Don't, don't throw it away. It's not worth it. Christ has conquered the world and... If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, so have you. Don't you leave Mass today without knowing that in your heart. This is it. Jesus brought something new into the world, and he's changed the game. Anyone who operates on any old system after Christ's baptism is a dinosaur. If the A's can win a pennant with a broken-armed catcher at first base, then through Christ's baptism, you can conquer the world. Amen.